Good evening. I just got to tell you something. I sense the air is fresh in this place. And I just got off a plane and got here and heard uh, Luther speak. But just being around the dining hall and listening to conversations and seeing the kind of energy spiritually that's here and the excitement, I'm refreshed already. And uh, it's because of the Lord in you. So be encouraged. God's working, doing great things. I just spoke to Franklin just a little bit ago on my cell phone before I lost the signal. But he's terribly interested in this. He's, this is something that's been on his heart. And he um, not only has the heart to, uh, as you always hear him say, help those in the ditch along life's road. That's his famous quotation. But also to partner with other people who do that. And uh, to spread the love of Christ through all of the body of Christ. So we're so glad honestly, that you're here. And I'm honored to be here with you. Uh, I thought that before we started that we should do what Luther recommended. It was Ed who took his life. Uh, He mentioned that he's left behind his dear wife, Phyllis, and that we should pray for her. And I see the sign, Rapid Response Team. We, We should respond now to that request and pray right now for Phyllis. Let's do that. Lord, we know the power of God unleashed through prayer. We also know that you are the God of all comfort, and you comfort us in all of our tribulation. Lord, we pray that you would undergird and carry Phyllis through this very difficult, monumentally so, time. We pray that she would know your love and hear your voice stronger than ever before. Lord, we pray that you'd, uh, you'd begin to heal that broken heart. Uh, You're close to those who are of a broken heart. We know that, Lord, because of what we do. And we we do thank you that uh, you're working even now in response to this. We pray you show yourself strong on her behalf, in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by reading a little bit of a letter to you tonight, and we're going to be, by the way, in Psalm um, 27, if you brought your Bibles. If you didn't, I'll just read it to you. But this is a letter sent to the IRS that says, Dear Sirs, I cannot sleep. Last year, when I filed my income tax return, I deliberately misrepresented my income. Now I cannot sleep. Therefore, enclosed is a check for $150 for taxes. If I still cannot sleep, I will send you the rest. (laughs) How's that for honesty to the IRS? I'll tell you why I shared that with you. I went to New York City, as was mentioned, because Franklin called me and said, we want to get some pastors and counselors down to ground zero immediately. So I called people who had been in the police chaplaincy work, and I wasn't really involved like I am now with the FBI at that time. I was a pastor, was had police officers in the church and worked with firefighters and had a heart for that, but uh, I had a busy schedule, and uh, things changed on 9-11 for a lot of people. When I went down to Ground Zero and worked with chaplains, people who had been in the Oklahoma City bombing incident and several of the disasters that some of you have been involved in, 
When I was down there day after day, breathing that air and that disaster at Ground Zero, and I saw the impact of chaplaincy, I decided I got to do something. And that's when I went back home and asked the SAC at Albuquerque, the special agent in charge, do you have a chaplain? I'd love to be involved. And so I went through uh, all that it takes to do that and and, am presently serving with the uh, FBI. And to me, it was like saying to the IRS, I want to pay the rest back. You guys have laid down your lives and you've served, and I saw what the firefighters do and did and the police do and did in New York, etc. And so I felt like the guy writing the letter, I can't sleep. And when I got back from Ground Zero, I couldn't sleep for a number of reasons. I just thought, i got to pay the rest back. So it's interesting that I have become involved with the Federal Bureau of Investigation because when I was a kid, those black and white cars, the CHPs, I detested them. Like everybody else in California, you get white knuckles when you see in the rearview mirror black and white. And I got in my fair share of trouble with the police when I was growing up in Southern California. And then I found a verse of scripture in Romans that talks about obeying the laws of the land because these people are God's ministers. And I discovered the word diakonia is the same word the Bible uses to describe servants, deacons in a church. So my attitude began to change toward law enforcement. True story, last time I got a ticket. I thanked the police officer. And you should have seen the look on his face. (laughs) When I said, I want to thank you for doing God's work and protecting the community, he just kind of looked at me and said, whatever. (laughs) Well, Psalm 27 is where I want to direct your attention tonight. And tonight and tomorrow, we're going to be looking at this whole thing of sharing your faith, probably principally more tomorrow. Tonight I want to look at what I see in Psalm 27 as five firm steps that anyone can take during a time of crisis, slippery time of crisis. And uh, maybe you did or didn't bring your Bible, so I'm just going to read through Psalm 27, then we'll go back and make reference to it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise up against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. 
Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen up against me. And as such as breathe out violence, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. We all know that crisis causes anxiety, the kind of anxiety that overwhelms. It can become so overwhelming, so all-consuming, that our focus is on the disaster and the disaster alone. Case in point, 9-11. After and on the day of September 11th, you didn't hear much about the newest song on the charts. People didn't talk a lot about health care. Before that, it was a huge issue. All sorts of other issues became suddenly non-issues. If you're familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a great preacher of this last century. He took over for G. Campbell Morgan at Westminster Chapel in London. He was a physician. And in his book, Spiritual Depression, I believe, he speaks about the Spanish Civil War. And he said, just prior to the Spanish Civil War in Barcelona and Madrid, Spain, what he called the psychiatric clinics were were filled to capacity with people needing therapy and counseling uh, weekly for phobias and private anxieties and personal issues, uh, just the kind of daily stuff. He said one of the most interesting things that happened once the Civil War hit that country is it virtually emptied all of the clinics in a day. And here's why, he said. The greater anxiety eclipsed the lesser anxiety. Suddenly there's a shift, not about um, my own personal issues as much as will my husband or son come back from the war. There's a greater anxiety. And that's what disaster does. It tips the scale of anxiety and fear. And it becomes this all-consuming thing that takes over our lives. Greater anxieties get rid of lesser ones. Psalm 27 was written during a time of crisis, of anxiety. We don't know what it was. We know David wrote it. It says so at the beginning. We know David was a soldier. It could be a time of war or even civil unrest, as some suppose. But just a glance at the psalm brings to the surface crisis. Words like wicked, enemies, foes, army, war, false witnesses, breathing out violence. Very descriptive words of a time of crisis, disaster. But at the same time, along with that, paralleled are other words that are important and our attention is piqued by them. Words like strength, Words like confident, beauty, sing, salvation, goodness. And so this psalm becomes a beautiful template 
of our attitude and the kind of attitude we try to foster and bring at a time of disaster and crisis to those in need. And, and here's the first firm step. It's called vigilance. It's the step of vigilance. In verse 2, he says, When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell, though an army may encamp against me. And he says, though war may rise up. These are very real parts of David's life. Among other things, David was a soldier. He was a fighting man. And he lived during a a crisis-ridden time in Israel. So these are a very real, normal part of David's experience. We live in a fallen world. It's no news to us. We know that. We, in disaster relief, deal with it a lot. Nobody has to convince us of that. We know that since the time of Adam and Eve's transgression, that war and disaster, crises, uh, terrorism, daily events, and seeming to increase. Did you know that there's a 13 to 1 ratio of peace and war? That is, for every 13 years historically, all the way back since recorded 3600 B.C., for every one year of peace, there's been 13 years of war. It is estimated that since 3600 B.C., 3.64 billion people have been killed by violent assault. That's our world. It's so massive that if you were to tally up the expense, just the destruction value, we look at the hurricane pictures and the houses that are destroyed, the value of destruction would form a belt of solid gold that would be 33 feet tall by 97.2 miles wide that would go around the entire earth like a wedding ring. The value of destruction. Uh, Somebody once said that peace is the brief moment in history where everybody stands around reloading. (laughs) David understood that. And uh, knowing biblical history as you do, you know that Israel was plagued with those kind of crises from time to time. Our world has changed over the last several years. There's even a new department, the Department of Homeland Security. That's a, that's a whole new branch of the government that is growing. And now the whole science of threat analysis is common knowledge to the public. Uh, transportation and border issues that we never really had to face before are real concerns now. Biological warfare, radiological warfare, all of these are very real concerns in the world in which we live. So uh, it takes vigilance. That is, of all people, Christians can't be naive that we live in a fallen, plagued-by-sin world that isn't getting any better, it's getting worse. We're not unaware of potential evil. The reality of disaster, terrorism, war, accidents, it's very real to us. It's a part of not only... uh, uh, the world of God's judging people, it's a part of good people's lives. You know, there's always the question, and it was brought up tonight, God, how could you allow these disasters to happen? Why do good things happen to bad people? Or, or why do bad things happen to good people? 
Why do bad things happen to God's people? And and we do understand that uh, Jesus said God causes the rain and the sun to fall on the just and the unjust alike. So you can be good, you can be godly, you can be like Job, and you can have everything stripped away from you in a moment. It was Reader's Digest. It was actually a very concise piece of theology that came from Reader's Digest. It said, expecting not to be treated badly just because you're a good person is like expecting an angry bull not to attack you just because you're a vegetarian. (laughs) I read that and I thought, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. The sun and the rain fall on the just, that is the good, that is the godly, and the unjust, that is the wicked, alike. And Job... We remember what he said. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So we understand and we deal with people and in disaster meet with people who are some of the sweetest, kindest, good, godly people who are suffering tremendous things. And we tell them graciously and gently that being good and godly doesn't make us immune from disaster or wicked events. Chuck Colson said, it's absurd for Christians to constantly seek new demonstrations of God's power, to expect a miraculous answer to every need from curing ingrown toenails to finding parking places. This only leads to faith in miracles instead of faith in God. Let me just take you off the hook here. I had a busy day at the airport this morning, even at 4.30 in the morning in California, and the parking lot was packed, and I found myself praying, God, just open up a parking space right up front. You can do it. You're God. Nothing's impossible for you. I didn't get one. I had to park on the other side. But But here's the point. Sometimes God will calm the storm. At other times, God will calm the child in the storm. That's where we come in. That's what we're all about. So that first step is vigilance. I know this stuff happens. I'm aware of it. We're watching for the storms. We're tracking them. The second firm step is confidence. It's right off the bat in this psalm where he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? In a crisis, fear is the most typical emotion. That can be all-consuming. Because in a crisis, suddenly we realize nothing is certain. Now what could happen as I look to the future? And fear is destructive. We know that. You know, the New Testament uses an interesting word. It's translated in English, worry. Jesus said, don't worry about your life, the birds of the air. God takes care of them. You know the scripture. Worry. He said, don't worry. Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts. It's the same word in the original language. Worry and anxiety is a word that the Greek used, merimnao. comes from two words, merizo and nous, which literally means to shred or tear the mind. That's a fitting description of worry. That's a fitting description of fear, anxiety. Your, your thoughts get torn, jumbled. 
you're, you're, you're being shredded. You're so distracted by this event that has happened. So, David, in the battle, in the crisis, says, here's his confidence, the Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now, he's facing real battles, real distress, real crisis. But this is his vote of confidence, not in his own battle ingenuity, not as I'm a great soldier and a great general, I'm going to go to battle, but his confidence is in the Lord. There's an old adage that says, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. As long as we, like Peter, say, don't worry, Lord, I can handle it. They may forsake you, but you can count on me. I'm the rock. Remember, you named me. We're sunk. But when our confidence is in the Lord, though we feel weak and we pray and we place our confidence in the Lord, therein is our strength. He says, the Lord is my light. Have you noticed that darkness accentuates fear and anxiety? You know, at night, fears are bigger. When you lay your head down on the pillow, the problem that you are managing by day is unleashed at night. It's big. Psalm 30, verse 5, even states it this way, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So here's the, the key thought here in this little phrase. It is dark, granted, but the Lord is my light. Whenever you read that, God and light together, light in the Bible speaks of a few different things in regards to God. Physically, light speaks of the glory of God. Wherever God shows up, it seems to be in a brilliant display. Second, uh, on a moral level, it speaks of the holiness of God. Light has pure, brilliant qualities to it. Very unique, breathtaking. Speaks of pure holiness of God on a moral level. Intellectually, light speaks of the knowledge of God. God is omniscient. He's totally, absolutely enlightened. We've heard of the age of enlightenment. It's where we know more. We left the dark ages. Now we're enlightened. So when we speak about God being light, it's the idea that God knows absolutely everything in this time of darkness. God knows about how you treated your wife last week, men. God heard the word you said on the golf course or tennis court or changing lanes on the freeway the other day. God knows all of that, and sometimes that frightens us, that all things, as the writer of Hebrews said, are open and naked before the one with whom we have to give an account. But it's comforting in a crisis because the same God who knows all that knows the crisis that I am in now, and that which is darkness to me is not darkness to God. David said in Psalm 139, The light and the darkness are both alike unto thee. So the Lord is my light. Nothing escapes his gaze. He sees your crisis. He sees your pain. He says, The Lord is the strength of my life. Okay, here I am. I feel weak, but God is strong. It's dark, but God is light. At the point that I'm weak, God's strong. At the point I'm vulnerable, God is powerful. That's the idea. That's the thought in a crisis. Great story, true story. 
Dr. George McCoslin was the director of the YMCA in western Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh. He was uh, experiencing the, the worst time of his career because the YMCA was losing membership at, at an all-time high. Finances were down. He didn't know how he's going to pay the bills, how he's going to make this thing float. He was working 85 hours a week, losing sleep, filled with fear and anxiety. He went to see a counselor, godly counselor, who said, George, you're going to have to learn to let go of this and let God take care of it, or you're going to have a nervous breakdown. He said, Doc, I know, but I just can't. I don't know how to do that. I'm consumed by this. George McCausland said it was a Thursday afternoon and he decided to leave his office. He took a, a yellow pad and a pencil and he walked out into the woods and he just walked and he walked and he started praying and he said, I just felt the anxiety lift. Sat down under a tree and I wrote a letter to God. Dear God, he wrote, I hereby resign as the general manager of the universe. Signed, George. And he said then, wonder of wonders, God accepted my resignation. (laughs) I think God's just waiting for that letter to come from us. In a crisis, because it is all-consuming and we take the world upon our shoulders, we tend to keep it there for a long time. And it breaks us. It weighs us down. And we come in as crisis management people. And we want to direct people, not as Solomon was looking, under the sun and seeing vanity of vanities, but to the Son of God, who is able and willing to receive our resignation as executive manager of the universe. Now, in verse 4 and onward, there's a third step. And that is reverence. After vigilance, I'm aware of what's going on. I'm not naive. After confidence, the Lord is my light, my strength, my strong tower, comes reverence. He says, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer the sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. It was an act of will, not a feeling. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. Notice those words, desired, seek, and uh, inquire. This is David's humble worship, reverence before God. In a crisis, in a time of anxiety, it is very easy to lose sight of God. The crisis overwhelms us. Now we know the answer is letting God overwhelm the crisis. That's the management process that we work through. That's the process David enters. As he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to worship. I'm not going to wait till I feel like it's the right time. This is right. I'm going to do it. One thing, he says, 
I have desired of the Lord, and now will I seek. Notice how emphatic he is about this. As if he has this single-minded devotion. One thing, not 15, one. One thing I have desired. Listen to it in the Amplified Bible. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, inquire for, and insistently require. Life is unpredictable. And we don't know when, but we do know that several, not just one, several crises will come in an average lifetime. The key for David was to be battle ready before the battle. The time of preparation was way before the battle, not like it's a crisis, now what do I do? He deployed spiritually way before the battle and he was prepared alone in times of worship and praise, so that it became his conditioned response in a time of crisis. I'm going to do this. I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to inquire. David won the battle in his private devotional time before the battle happened. Jesus said, Men ought always to pray and not to faint. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. As first responders, the first response should always be prayer. Oh, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you really can't do more than pray until you've prayed. That's the first response. Why is it that prayer becomes the last resort rather than the first response? Have you listened to some of us lately? Maybe not us, but have you listened to Christians lately? They'll say things like this and they'll betray their view of prayer. There's nothing left to do except pray. What? As if prayer is some menial, tiny... Listen, prayer's the big guns. That's first string. You start with that. And I think that if prayer would be the first response, that it would never have to be the last resort. F.B. Meyer said, The great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer. It's unoffered prayer. I love what I heard about a church in London uh, in World War II when the Nazis were bombing London. One church decided to put out a little sign, Downtown London, as the bombs are going off. He said, said, If your knees knock, kneel on them. (laughs) Imagine reading that during a war. Verse 4. Verse 4, Behold, he says, the beauty of the Lord. Or in its context, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. The word beauty could be translated the delightfulness of God. Okay, let's frame it. Go back to the context. David's writing this during a national crisis, during a time of war probably. And during the time of war, when you're apt to look at the crisis, the overwhelming uh, anxiety of the situation, the darkness that's plaguing you, the problem, in the midst of the ugliness, David sees the beauty of the Lord. I want to behold the beauty of God. So many people, now I'm speaking generally, in life, fail to see the beauty of That's all around them. The beauty of the Lord. 
It's always the negative. It's always the dark. It's always the problem. Bruce Larson calls these the gray people. Very descriptive, isn't it? The gray people. There's no color. There's no life. Their world is drab. In a world that is ugly, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now those are just words, but I want to share with you a true story. When the war in Iraq happened, one of the things that I kept thinking about in my head in uh, Baghdad was a group of Christians that I had met with right after the first Gulf War. I went over with Operation Christmas Child and we delivered 32,000 shoeboxes to um, the kids in Iraq to tell them that Jesus Christ loves them. It was a very powerful witness. So I was thinking about a church, and I remember meeting one night around Christmas time with a group of believers, Arabic-speaking believers in Baghdad. And I knew their city was getting bombed, and I wondered if their church had been bombed or their homes. And then I found this article. It's by reporter David Friedman reporting from Amman, Jordan, about the Christians in Iraq. Quote, Morale among the people that we have spoken to in Baghdad is higher than we have expected. One Christian was interviewed. He said, on Sunday, some of our friends went to church in the morning. Now this is right during our bombing of Baghdad. During the Lord's Prayer, as they finished the words and deliver us from evil, they heard a terrible explosion not far away. They know that God is with them, protecting them and encouraging them. One man said that at the beginning of the conflict, everyone in the congregation was feeling drained and worn down with fear. But as they felt that God was speaking to them, he was telling them to be encouragers for others, their strength returned. And they now feel stronger than they did before the war started. There's a group of Christians in battle, literally, in darkness, in ugliness, beholding the beauty of the Lord. Here's a fourth step. Obedience. Obedience. Verse 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, will I seek. Notice the quick response there. God, during that time, gave me a command. Seek me. And I said, Right on. Amen. So be it. Done. I'm going to do it. A quick and immediate response of obedience to the Lord during a time of crisis. It's as if, and this is how I take it now, it's as if David is saying, this crisis has amplified your voice to me, Lord. I hear it clearer than ever before. Have you found that to be true? Have you found that in the time of the worst Situations of your life, God's voice is clearer than ever before. It's unmistakable. It's like, now I get it. Now I hear you. It's, it's, it's a message that's unmistakable. You're telling me to seek your face. I'm going to do it. It was C.S. Lewis, it's his famous quote, who said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts to us in our pains that pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world gets people's attention, doesn't it? In a time of crisis, you hear God's voice. You, you, you see life. You see the brevity of life as bodies are piled up. You see mistaken priorities versus important things, true priorities. 
because of the brevity of life. You also have the reality of there's a heaven and there's a hell. And people are going to face eternity. And that's important. So all of that, the voice of God becomes clear and the response to that voice becomes so important. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, will I seek. Because of the overwhelming nature of crisis, of disaster, we become instinctive generally. We have a tendency to be reactive rather than obedient. That is, during a time of crisis, it's all about the crisis, and we forget times of regular Bible study, devotion, fellowship with other believers. Example, when 9-11 happened or when the war broke out overseas, we were glued, I was going to say to CNN, but I wouldn't say that to this crowd, to Fox News. We were glued to the television set, right? We want it fair and unbalanced. I mean, fair and balanced and unbiased. So we were glued. Why were we glued to the television set? Because we wanted information. And that's my point. During a crisis, there's a tendency for us to get more information from earth rather than transformation from heaven. Because crisis does that. I did it. I was looking at the embedded reporter's reports to see if Aaron, a friend of mine, a friend of the family, and others that I knew in our church who were deployed, if it was them that would be announced as dead. Were they still alive? Did I see their face? And so we look for the information rather than the transformation. By the way, you never find peace in information. Never. Remember that in a crisis. Remember that when people will say, why would God allow this to happen? Even if you had the best apologetic answer in the world, it won't help. Because at times of crisis, you don't need information. You don't need reasons. You need resources. And that's where we come in. We're supplying the resource of God through our care and compassion and our presence and our prayers and our encouragement. Verse 10 is interesting. When my father and mother forsake me, That could be by a deliberate act. It could be by an involuntary act, uh, just by their passing off the scene, by death. When my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will take care of me or the Lord will take me up. Even those nearest and dearest to David, David knew he couldn't rely on as much as he could rely on God. By the way, some of the greatest saints in history have been cast out by their families. And it's been the... Worst time of crisis for them, but it turned out to be one of the best all-around experiences. I'll give you an example. My son's in India right now, so I'm having all sorts of thoughts of how he is doing. I haven't heard from him. He's been there for about a week now. When I first went to India, I met a man named Joy Kudichako. And his name fitted his personality. He had a smile from ear to ear. And he goes, Hello, brother. My name is Joy. Joy Kutichako, God is so good. And I thought, this guy can't be for real. And he told me a story. He was the son of a Hindu priest. And so I said, well, tell me about how you came to Christ. And he said, I had no joy in my life. In, in, I won't do the accent because it'll take away from the story. But he said, I was so fed up with life that I went into a hotel room 
and tied a rope to the ceiling and put my neck in it, I was going to commit suicide. And I heard a voice that said, you will find peace today. He said, it spooked me. (laughs) And I took off the rope and I went out into the street and I found a missionary. Or the missionary found me and he told me about Jesus and led him to Christ. And so he went home and he told his family. The Hindu priest, I have found Jesus Christ and I have peace in my heart. And he said, my father took a knife out to kill me, to sacrifice me to the gods. He said, I've never seen my father and mother from that day forward. I ran away from home, not gone back since. But I have such joy. I thought, yeah, you're for real. (laughs) And I need to learn that. When my father and mother forsake me, talk about a crisis. The Lord will take care of me. After the Rwandan Civil War, and I went there after that Civil War, maybe some of you did as well, Afterwards, Samaritan's Purse was vitally involved in that. That's who I went with afterwards with some of the medical teams. Franklin Graham was over there. And Franklin was crossing the border from Rwanda into Uganda. And when he was at the border, he said, I saw a girl in a pickup truck, a young girl. She was sitting in the back of the truck, holding on to her little blanket, swaying back and forth, and she was singing something. He was such an odd sight that he asked the soldier there, what is she singing? He said, I can't understand. She's singing in French. There was a soldier who understood French, and he went and listened to her, and he said, she is singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He said, tell me her story. He said, oh, it's a tragic story, Mr. Graham. It's a story of thousands of orphans who watched as their moms and dads were hacked to death with machetes. That's the trauma that they're living with. But here's this little girl. At the back of a pickup truck, she's lost everything. She's lost mom and dad. But she knows something, and she's singing what she knows. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And in a time of crisis, you never want to trade the things you know for the things you don't know. Oh, there's a lot of, you don't know. Why would God allow it? I don't know. Why would this happen? I don't know. Why why did they, I don't know. But I'm not going to trade what I do know for the few things I don't know. I know God is good. I know God loves me, for the Bible tells me so. And here's a little girl, and it's so stunned Franklin. That was the image that he walked away with from that event. Stripped of everything, seeking God. Finally, and I'll close with this, the fifth step is expectance. Expectance. Verse 13. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and He will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. You know what I love about David? One of the things... He talked to himself. (laughs) He's counseling himself. It's a good thing to do. You say, isn't it weird to talk to yourself? You know, my dad used to say he loved to talk to himself because he liked to talk to a wise man. (laughs) 
And he liked to hear a wise man talk. That was my dad. But you know, the Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord in the book of Samuel. Remember what he did? He did it so often. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. Talk to himself. And he says, wait for God to work. And he meant it. He was firm. So here's a question. Do you expect, do you expect to see God's goodness revealed at a time of crisis and displayed? I'll answer that for you. Yes. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't do what you do unless you believe that God is going to do great things through the ministry that God's called you to do. I'll close with this. As children bring their broken toys with tears for us to mend, I brought my broken dreams to God because he was my friend. But then, instead of leaving him in peace to work alone, I hung around and tried to help with ways that were my own. At last, I snatched them back and cried, How can you be so slow? My child, he said, What could I do? You never did let go. Do we not know that one of the key things to do in a crisis, we don't know the answers, it is darkness, is to let go. We let go of it. We give it over to him. We give him God room. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I'm in the room, this room, filled with these men and women who love to give their time and energy to those who are hurting because they know that during times of pain, you shout. Your voice is clear. We hear you say, seek my face, and we have seen countless numbers of people come to faith in Christ during times of crisis. So, though we don't relish or enjoy the pain or the crisis, or the devastation that we see. We do know, Lord, that the sun and the rain are going to fall on the just and the unjust. Keep us vigilant in that, aware and not naive, and confident in you during these times. In Jesus' name, amen.